Well, we've reached uh, Hebrews 5, and we've seen how Christ in his supremacy is being set forth before the Hebrew Christians and to the whole church down the ages in this letter to the Hebrews. And you may wonder why the reading in Hebrews terminated at verse 10. And there was a, a, a good reason for that. If you look at chapter 5 and verse 10 and chapter 6 and verse 20, if you've got a Bible with you, you see similar words. In chapter 5 verse 10, the end of the reading, it says, Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then chapter 6 verse 20, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Very similar words. They are really bookends, and this is really what's called a digression, or the technical word is a parenthesis. Really, the main argument continues from chapter 5, verse 10, to chapter 7, verse 1, because at this point, the writer is going to expand and explain about Melchizedek. And the bit in, in the middle, the parenthesis, is while he pauses and applies uh, and brings out some practical points. So we're looking this morning at the, as it were, the left-hand side of the book, the bookend. We're looking at what he is teaching us here about Christ as our high priest. We've come now to the dominant theme in the letter to the Hebrews. Yes, it exalts Christ's supremacy from various angles, but the letter particularly exalts his supremacy as a priest and as indeed a high priest. Now, there was pastoral issue here, pastoral reason for this, as well as wonderful doctrinal reasons. The fact is it was the office of the high priest of Israel that was probably more than anything else tempting the Jewish Christians to return to Judaism. Things were difficult. The letter makes clear there were economic difficulties and other physical difficulties uh, and sheer discouragement in being a Christian at this time, which is somewhat later than the beginning of the early church. Perhaps it's about AD 70, somewhere around there. And more than anything else, and admittedly this is surmising, but it seems very likely that it would be the office of the high priest that would be tempting Jewish Christians to return to Judaism. Why was that? Well, because the whole of the gorgeous, glorious, ceremonial and heritage of Old Testament Israel was focused on this figure in his gorgeous robes, his ephod, his breastplate, his mitre, there offering up ceremonial sacrifices in the temple, particularly the only one allowed into the Holy of Holies once a year. And that would continue, in fact, until AD 70 exactly, when the temple was sacked by the Romans. But up to this point, he stands for all of the blessings of God upon Israel that rich redemptive history that's come down through the ages from Aaron downwards. And it was also visible. Whereas Christianity, following Christ, 
is not visible. It has an invisible quality. There's a greater demand on faith. And it's no accident that as we get towards the end of the letter to the Hebrews, we find a whole chapter on faith, Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. <clears throat> that was the challenge. Would they, would they go back to a, an obvious visible high priest or would they continue to follow Jesus as our great high priest? And already in chapters 3 and 4, the writer has been applying the need to go by faith as he takes issue with the unbelief of Old Testament Israel and any unbelief that might be lingering in the hearts of his readers. There is a similar pressure today to want to very much focus on things visible in the church of Jesus Christ, as, as speaking generally, that is. There's always the temptation to add visible things, whether it's pictures of Jesus, whether it's crosses or priestly robes or other things to substitute sight for faith. But we only are given two areas where we can say that we embrace sight in our worship, and that is in the ordinances, the ordinances of baptism and the ordinances of the Lord's Supper. Otherwise, it is immaterial. It's invisible. So what he is doing here is setting before us Jesus as our priest and as our high priest. And he does it by means of a comparison between that first great high priest, Aaron, and Jesus himself. The comparison brings us in these ten verses similarities and differences between Aaron and Jesus. But he's showing that Jesus is immeasurably greater than Aaron. Just one technical point here, and I'm not going to dwell on it. I just mention it. You can think about it. But we have within these ten verses what's called a chiasm. It's an ancient device used in writings. Uh, it's like a cross. He moves from considering Aaron's activity to his sympathy and to his appointments. And he moves in the opposite direction with Christ from his appointment to his sympathy to his activity. And you may say, well, that's interesting in a literary way. Is it worth mentioning? Well, it is worth mentioning because where you get this kind of literary device, it's always a signal that the writer is wanting to emphasize something. He's here signaling to his readers, to the more literary perhaps of them, that he's getting to the very heart of his letter, to something that is vital in what he has to say. Well, with that technical point said, let's just now move to his comparison of Aaron and of Christ. Let's compare them first as to their appointment. In verse 1 he says, For every high priest taken from among, man, among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. So the first thing we notice is that the high priest is taken from among men. He is human. 
He's not some invisible uh, agent, some supernatural agent. He is very, very human. And then in verse 4 and 5, And no man taketh this honour unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. In both cases, if we're thinking of Aaron, he was appointed by God. And if we're thinking of Jesus, he was appointed to the high priestly ministry by God. He's saying that. And he's quoting two Psalms to illustrate that the appointment of Christ. Psalm 2 in verse 5, the quotation which you may have recognized from the earlier reading this morning. He that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. And then in verse 6, Psalm 110, as he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, a quotation from Psalm 110. But the point is all the priests, the high priests, and even Jesus were appointed to this office, to this role. They weren't, if we can put it this way, they weren't volunteers. It wasn't the activity of some sort of democratic ecclesiastical institution. It was God's appointment. It was God who, through Moses, appointed Aaron to the high priestly ministry. You can read all about that in the Pentateuch, in Exodus. And it was God who appointed Jesus to be a priest. A reminder, then, that neither of these people, these normative priests, these first uh, priests, Aaron and then Christ, were pushing themselves forward. They weren't grabbing at office. Uh, They were illustrating the teaching in their own ways that we find in the book of Proverbs in chapter 25 and verses 6 and 7. It's the principle is the same as the Uh, as Solomon here says put not forth thyself in the presence of the king and stand not in the place of great men for better it is that he that said unto thee come up hither than that thou shouldest be put lower in the presence of the prince whom thine eyes have seen and you may remember that Jesus says something very similar in the gospels don't put yourself into the presence of the king as someone who deserves to be there in the royal circle. Don't push yourself forward. It's better that someone says to you, come up higher, than that they say, what are you doing here? Go down lower. In other words, there must be a call of God. There must be an appointment. It's not the activity of human pride to take hold of this office of priest. And when in the Old Testament a few people did try to take hold of the office of priest, and I mentioned, I think, not too long ago, King uh, Uzziah, they found the, the wrath of God coming upon them for that presumption. I think there is a lesson here, too, in terms of, uh, of, of office and status and role within the church of Jesus Christ. To preach the gospel is not just something that We decide democratically, and if you're a volunteer, yeah, well, you'll do. You've got two legs, two arms, and a head, and you can speak, and you've got the gift of the gab. 
No, there has to be a call, a call to preach, a call to teach, which comes from God. Admittedly, not everyone is called to it in full time, in a full time sense. But if Christ is calling you, then it is an appointment. And don't drag your feet. Aaron didn't drag his feet. The Lord Jesus didn't drag his feet. But as the New Testament makes clear, be sure it is his call. Letter of James, chapter 3. My brethren, be not many teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. He doesn't say we don't want any teachers. Don't you dare to think of this as a call of God. No, he doesn't say that, but he does say, well, don't all of you be jumping into this role. You have to be appointed to it. There has to be this constraint upon you. This is of God. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. Now, admittedly, that's not about the high priesthood, what I've just said, but the principle is the same. It's an appointment. And Jesus' appointment, yes, it was like Aaron. It was from God. But it's immeasurably greater. And you'll notice there are two aspects to it in verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, he quotes from Psalm 2. As he speaks of him raising his son to his throne. As he speaks of him setting his king upon his holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. And here is Jesus on his throne ruling the world. And he's doing it as as the son of man. The image here is human. And the Lord Jesus Christ, because every high priest is taken from among men, he has to be a man. He has to be human. And that's what Psalm 2 is about. It's saying that this is all part of his status To be an appointed high priest, he had to have flesh and blood. But then we take the other quotation in verse 6 from Psalm 110. In verse 4 of that psalm, the Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is a, a repeated refrain in this chapter and the next two chapters that Christ is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But notice when this is said, this is said, as it were, in eternity. The Lord has sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever. This appointment stretches back in eternity. We cannot grasp it, but there's never been a time when Jesus hasn't been appointed to the priesthood. Yes, It will have to happen in space and time, but as far as the appointment goes, it's from all eternity. And you can see now there's no comparison, as they say, between Aaron and Christ when we think of it like that. No comparison in terms of the greatness, the immeasurably greater greatness of Jesus Christ as our high priest from all eternity. So don't just go for a human figure. Consider the greatness of his appointment. And then we consider the greatness of their, or we consider and compare their activity. Notice what's said of Aaron in verse 1. 
Every high priest, this is Aaron and, and the line of Aaron, taken from among man, men. So I've got a, a bit of a, a printing error in my Bible. The ink is, is just a little bit smudged there, so I should read this as men. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. What is his activity? It's to offer gifts and sacrifices. Gifts stands for unbloody sacrifices, like the, the meal offering, the flower offering, the incense offering, the wine offering. And sacrifices stands for blood sacrifices. Sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs. In both cases, they are pertaining to God. In both cases, they're part of the worship of God, the approach to God in this ceremonial representation of the need for atonement. That is Aaron's activity and all the high priests that have come after him. But in Christ's case, yes, there is an activity, but look what it says in verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Here is a far greater activity. To not merely offer up physical, material sacrifices which are just types and shadows of Christ's great sacrifice itself. But to become the author of eternal salvation. What the the antitype is, the real thing, the real salvation which is eternal in its scope. Again, we have to say there is no comparison from one angle. Now, the letter is going to say much more about what Christ offered. But we see, again, what he's saying is that Aaron's task, it was from God. He was appointed by God. It was in things pertaining to God. He's not rubbishing what took place in the days of Aaron. He doesn't take that view of the Old Testament. But he's saying here now is something far, far greater. A high priest who doesn't just come to offer animal sacrifices, but is offered such a sacrifice that it brings actual real salvation in the hearts of those who follow him. Don't go back on that. Don't turn your back on that. And then thirdly, and just at somewhat greater length, we compare Aaron and Christ as to their sympathy. Now it is interesting to see what he says that even Aaron and his um, priestly successors were appointed with with the actual purpose that they should have sympathy on their Um, congregation on the people they ministered to. Look in verse 2. Every high priest is taken from among men and he can have who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. So here's this man of God Aaron and he was a man of God in spite of Uh, some faults in his character and in his behavior at times, but basically he was a man of God. And as the Israelites came to him with all their problems and sins and failures, he was someone who felt with them, who sympathized with them, who empathized with them, and yet his task 
was to bring them back into the way. His task was to instruct them that they should be no longer ignorant. So he taught them not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And above all, the character of the God who gave that law, full of grace and compassion and holiness. He was a pastor as well as a priest. And that was ideally what should have been the case right down the ages in the line of Aaronic priesthood. And we see now what a monster Caiaphas was and Annas. That they should be such materialistic, covetous, time-serving people and people who would just uh, eventually crucify the Lord of glory. We see just how, how blasphemous and evil was their ministry in the light of what's said here about Aaron's sympathy. And then we read about Christ's sympathy. Uh, as it goes on to say, well, it's, as it's already said, actually, in chapter 4, verse 15, we have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all point, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. We haven't got a high priest like that. Our high priest isn't insensitive. Our high priest isn't lacking compassion and sympathy. To put it another way, he cannot but be touched. And now in chapter 5, the writer is enlarging on the sympathy of Christ. And in what he has to say in verses 7 and 8, we learn more. Who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard that in that he was heard in that he feared though he were a son yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered we're being taken back to the garden of gethsemane actually and you might like to just turn if you've got a bible with you turn to luke chapter 22 and verse 40. And when he, that's Jesus, was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeling, kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. Now that is the account. Similar things are said in the other Gospels. But we have here in Hebrews some narrative that is not found in the Gospels connected with the Garden of Gethsemane, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong cryings and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard that in, in that he feared. We're given a unique insight here. It meshes with, it fully uh, coordinates with the Gospel accounts, but there's more here. And it's to do with Christ and his sympathy for those who are following him. 
and coming to him. And we may ask, perhaps we should ask, how can somebody who never sinned have sympathy, have compassion on those that are ignorant and are out of the way? Well, this is a question that is actually implicitly answered here by the writer. We, we read firstly, and we're going to use an educational image here, we read firstly that Jesus had a lesson to learn. Verse 8, though he were a son, yet learned he what? Obedience by the things which he suffered. He learned obedience. Not that Jesus was disobedient, not that he even wanted to be disobedient. So what does it mean? It means that he learned the experience of what was involved in being obedient to his father in this world. In other words, he learned something which he already knew in terms of knowledge, but he learned it in his experience. It's that kind of um, thought of wisdom, is it not? Wisdom is more than just knowledge, head knowledge. Wisdom is actual fear of the Lord in practice. There was a time when he could not learn it. Why? Because he hadn't yet entered into his school days, if we can use that educational metaphor. He wasn't yet in his school days. What were those days? Verse 7, they were the days of his flesh. Who in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications. What were those days? They were days from his birth until his death, from the beginning, the incarnation, right through to his final being laid in the tomb. Those were the days of his flesh. And until he embarked upon that, until he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O Lord, thy law is written within my heart. Until he embarked upon that journey, this was a lesson he could not fully learn as to what it meant in experience, obedience. And this, you see, was qualifying him for his sympathy because he had coursework to do. He had coursework. What was that work? It was by the things which he suffered. Yes, it's difficult for us sinners to experience obedience and suffering for Christ's sake. But it is far, far more difficult for sinlessness Because sinlessness resists unto blood. Sinlessness resists all the way, right through to extremity, right through to sweating great drops, as it were, blood right through to the cross, right through to being under the wrath of God. He learned obedience, the actual practical matter of obeying the father in all the weakness and limitations of manhood although yes he was still very God for Jesus it was an anticipated experience but it was something entirely new and he really suffered as we read who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications we come to Gethsemane here with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death Yes, everywhere else in the Gospels where Jesus is praying, we can reckon often he's praying for others, but I think we can say, reckon here that 
while he may be praying for others, above all, he's praying for himself, he's weeping for himself. As he beseeches the Father that if it's possible to remove this cup from me, this cup of the cross, of being cut off for the sins of others, as he tastes the cup, as he smells the bitter cup ahead. And here, you see, the writer is saying is the fountain, the great fountainhead of Christ's sympathy. As he enters into this course, this spiritual course of trauma, agony, and sorrow as our sin bearer and as the substitute for us under the wrath of God for sins that he hadn't committed but that we had, it's there in that experience. He suffered as no man suffered. But, as it says, he was heard in that he feared. He was heard and helped in his piety and in his purity. And he remembers this. And he will help us. He remembers it as our priest on high. He remembers his tears his agonies, his cries. And then we come to his success. His success. Yes, he was, he was successful in this educational assignment. It was total success. Verse 9. And being made perfect. And yes, filling it out, maturing it, taking it to completion. The word perfect here has all those thoughts in it. Being made perfect. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. He completed it, task done, task done totally successfully. The author of salvation. And the writer has more to say about that later in the letter. And really what the writer is saying is, this is a so great salvation there could be no salvation anywhere else. All the other types and shadows of the Old Testament, all the types and shadows were of God, yes, but they were all preparatory. They were all anticipatory. And they are far, far outclassed by the fulfillment, by the embodiment of it all in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man. There's nowhere else to go. And we have a great high priest, full of sympathy, full of compassion on those that are out of the way and ignorant. And his activity to offer up himself without spot to God as our high priest. He did that on the cross. And his appointment eternally made our priest after the order of Melchizedek. And God willing, we will look at that next time.